Hello, welcome to The Quest. My name is Alan Mulhern. As you are aware, the climate crisis, with its emphasis on greenhouse gases and global warming, is only part of the more general ecological crisis. This includes biodiversity loss, chemical pollution into land, air, rivers and oceans, particle pollution of the atmosphere, deforestation and land use, freshwater scarcity and the phosphorus and nitrogen cycle. These can be characterised as an attack upon nature by humans for our immediate gain, but to our long-term detriment. There is now no doubt that as far as our species is concerned, global warming is a potentially traumatic and even lethal component of this overall catastrophe. Previous episodes have emphasised that, at the very least, we should prepare for survival on a degraded planet. You will also be aware that I have been highly critical of the COP proceedings, that is, the gathering of the nations once a year, under the aegis of the United Nations, which in itself is not to blame for our current ecological negligence and destruction, but has played a positive role in bringing detailed and urgently needed knowledge to the world's attention on climate matters. However, it is not able to enforce the resolutions and pledges of the COP, which remain mostly on the level of guidance and encouragement. The fault lies with the nations themselves. Their divided and competitive state, one nation or one block against another, is fatal for progress since immediate and massive cooperation is required, precisely at the time when the world is splitting very severely with, for example, deglobalisation, intense suspicion between superpowers, military paranoia, breakdown of international peace, violent conflict, invasions, civil wars, extraordinary levels of nuclear threat, new areas for warfare and competition, for example, the deep seas, the Arctic and near space. In the crises that are emerging, these splits will intensify. At some point, there will arise an awareness that the age of the nation-state has to end and only a world government will be able to tackle world problems if we are to survive. I dread the inevitable dystopian aspects of this prospect, but it may be our only chance. More of this in later episodes. Previous episodes in this mini-series paid particular attention to the latest COP28 conference in Dubai. My view is that this large-scale and highly publicised event turned out to be an enormous failure, if not a fiasco. The time for merely aspirational statements and advice is gone. One of the most notable developments of the climate debate in 2023 and the start of 2024, that is around the time of the COP28 and immediately afterwards, has been the backpedalling on the questions of climate change. This may seem extraordinary, and at this point in time is an hypothesis, but it is my strong impression that the green agenda, rather than advancing, is in reverse. Here are some 15 examples for consideration. Shell one of the world's largest oil companies, is suing Greenpeace for at least $2.1 million in one of the largest ever legal claims against the environmental group 
after its protesters occupied a vessel for 13 days in 2023. Message. Fossil fuel companies are now feeling that the tide has turned their way. In 2023, Britain announced new oil and gas licences for the North Sea. The government argues that fossil fuels will still be needed in the medium term, despite the country's attempts to decarbonise. It also points out that in 2050, which is the long term, the target date for net zero emissions, the UK would still need oil and gas for a quarter of its energy. Message. Business is normal. The energy transition cannot meet its targets. In addition, the UK government suffered a big setback in 2023 when it failed to attract any bids from offshore wind developers for its latest round of contracts for new projects. The head of one of the world's biggest renewable energy companies said the failure was a wake-up call for the UK. Onshore wind, as opposed to offshore, is also facing problems. One of Britain's largest developers commented that it was halting work on its biggest project to date, a new wind farm in southern Scotland, due to rising costs and last year's windfall government tax on low-carbon electricity generators. Message. Carrying out the green agenda is far more difficult than envisaged. Our next example. Germany is in deep trouble with the Green Agenda. A Financial Times report of the 3rd of February 2024, entitled Outraged and Furious, referred to Germans rebelling against a gas boiler ban. That is, boilers to heat homes. Green policy is forcing homeowners to install heating systems powered by renewables, such as heat pumps. This policy is the result of a government bill that, in effect, bans new gas boilers in Germany in the near future. This is one of the most radical pieces of climate legislation Germany has ever produced. Ministers say it is pivotal to the country's plan to be carbon neutral by 2045. But the bill has triggered a popular backlash of exceptional intensity. The FT quotes one consumer as saying that he is not against heat pumps in principle. It is just that to install one, he would have to knock down his house and build a new one. Message. Consumers object to green policy when it is very painful. Well, how painful is it going to get? And how much will consumers tolerate? EU leaders in Brussels vowed to ease the burden of environmental rules in an attempt to quell protests by farmers who, with their tractors, demolished statues and started fires in Brussels during a summit in early February 2024. Message. The EU government gives way to forceful and potentially violent pressure from powerful sectors that campaign against the Green Agenda. Our next example. The Swedish government has lowered taxes on fossil fuels cut the required share of biofuels in petrol and diesel and undone a recent reform of tax exemptions for commuters which were designed to create incentives for public transport. 
The new taxation instead favours big city car drivers. The Swedish Climate Policy Council says Sweden's policies have gone from insufficient to catastrophic, quote-unquote. Message from the writer of the article, Lisa Pelling, that the Swedish reversals are a warning to Europe that the green transition can go into reverse, which is exactly the hypothesis we are exploring. In February 2024, Poland defied the EU court's interim order for it to stop mining coal. Poland refused to pay the resulting daily fine of €500,000. In response, the European Commission began deducting the fine from the EU funds earmarked for Poland, withholding €68 million in total, while Poland separately paid €45 million to the Czech Republic, its neighbour, in compensation for environmental damage by its coal-fired power stations. So, in effect, Poland is willing to pay hundreds of millions of euros to continue its coal production. Message. The worst of our CO2 polluting agents, coal, continues in Europe. Open defiance is possible. This undermines the rest of green policies in Europe and the perceived ability of the European government to enforce its laws. The next example. In 2023, the EU's ambitious climate agenda began to unravel as Germany, supported by Italy, Portugal and the Czech Republic, decided to shield their automotive industries from over-rapid transition to electrification. Further, EU member states now want to weaken limits on pollution from heavy trucks and large-scale farms. Message Yet again, the green agenda is in reverse. Victor Hill, in a April 2023 article, commented, quote, In Europe, the battle lines are now drawn on the green transition. Most politicians from across Europe admit that climate change is a real and present danger that needs to be tackled. But many question how quickly that transition should be pursued, given rampant inflation and soaring energy costs, which, as in the UK, are eroding disposable incomes. Currently, the European Commission is still committed to cutting greenhouse gas emissions in the bloc by 55% by 2030, and to reaching net zero carbon by 2050. Though how this is assessed is extremely vague. Unquote. Message. The implementation of the Green Agenda meets further powerful resistance at country and sector level in Europe. That is, the continent that is a supposed leader in the agenda of climate change. Imagine the resistance in the rest of the world. Next point. Shareholders with the Green Agenda have withdrawn a climate resolution at ExxonMobil after the oil giant sued them. Message. This is a retreat likely to have a chilling effect on similar forms of shareholder climate activism. Most of these examples have been within Europe, but a more worrying story can be found in America, 
where climate denial is more commonly found and whose gas and oil production is so much greater than that of Europe's. Now going further afield for the moment, South Africa in 2023 announced it must keep most of its ageing and highly polluting coal-fired power plants open, even though delays to their decommissioning will challenge plans to embrace clean energy. Western countries have pledged to support this shift to cleaner energy in South Africa, with loans and assistance worth at least $8.5 billion. But this figure is growing, as South Africa still is clarifying its, quote, just transition, unquote. Message. The green transition will not happen in developing countries unless it is substantially paid for and or loans are underwritten by the developed world. And I would suggest this is not going to happen on a sufficient scale. Next point. The financing of global climate tech investment has fallen drastically, according to PricewaterhouseCooper. Private market investment and government grant funding in climate tech startups fell by 40% in 2023, which returned climate tech startup funding back to its 2018 level. Message. Climate tech finance may be running out of steam as the reality of the transition sinks in. All the above are specific examples of which way the wind may be blowing on the climate agenda. Add to these the general points already made. Major oil companies are at peak profits. America is at peak oil and gas production. OPEC has not agreed to reduce its oil or gas output. Neither has any country with substantial oil and gas reserves. Message. Oil and gas production will not decrease in the foreseeable future. Russia's, India's and China's positions have differences in their climate policy. But it is obvious they are not accepting Western leadership on these issues, or on any other for that matter. China has made enormous advances in renewable energy and technological equipment. But between 2020 and 2023, its new coal-fired power stations, newly built, produced over 1 million megawatts of new capacity. A megawatt is a million watts. This constituted two-thirds of new coal-fired electricity output globally in this period. India was the next largest builder of coal-fired stations, though way behind China. Message. It's the turn of developing countries now, and climate concerns will certainly not stop them. So why should the rest of the world control their emissions if the big CO2 emitters, which includes America incidentally, are not doing their share? Final general point. The bottom line. CO2 levels continue to record levels year after year and further degradation of biodiversity, land, air, rivers and seas pollution, particle pollution of the atmosphere, deforestation and land use, 
freshwater scarcity, etc., continue. The case has been made that we will not manage to stabilise the temperature of the planet to within the 1.5 or 2 degree rise above the pre-industrial level. Indeed, we are currently blasting through both these thresholds. We are then in unknown territory, since tipping points, runaway impacts and synergistic effects will have unpredictable consequences. I find no solid argument to see why we should not proceed to 4 to 5 degrees above the pre-industrial level within this century, if not before. And why should it stop there? The title of this mini-series is The Ecological Catastrophe. Catastrophe sounds the right word to describe this evolving nightmare. Interacting with this particular horseman of the apocalypse are others. I have identified at least 10 to 12 of them, and this creates even greater levels of unpredictability. The overall scenario is then one of increasing greenhouse gas emissions, despite renewables increasing their share of energy consumption. As noted, most of the world is not reducing its emissions sufficiently. Result? Record temperatures, rising sea levels, increased extreme weather conditions, significant loss of human life, contraction in agricultural production, increased wildfires, decreased biodiversity, runaway impacts and tipping points, parts of the globe becoming unlivable, increased emigration and enormous pressure on target areas for human flows, such as America and Europe, increased frequency and intensity of wars, some countries falling into anarchy and failed state status, others into the opposite with increasing authoritarianism, control, surveillance and so forth, diminished influence of democracies, far greater security concerns, conflicts and wars for resources such as water. When I consider the scale of the interacting crises, their number, their intensity and their interacting dynamics, I feel that a vast paradigm shift is really required in the human psyche, equivalent to a spiritual transformation. But now, not even looking at the wider ecological crisis, with its enormous levels of pollution, deforestation, ocean acidification, biodiversity loss and so on, and focusing only on the climate crisis and zooming further in and just looking at rising sea levels, therefore ignoring extreme weather conditions, increased flooding from rainfall and rivers, increased intensity and extent of wildfires, heat extremes and their impact on human and animal health, as well as negative impacts on agriculture. So, just looking at rising sea levels. I quote from an abstract to an article published on December 2020 in a journal called One Earth, and written by five eminent scientists on this subject of rising sea levels. In particular, they're focusing on the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, and the validity of its predictions. So here's the quote. 
while 20th century sea level rise was dominated by thermal expansion of ocean water, mass loss from glaciers and ice sheets is now a larger annual contributor. There is, however, uncertainty on how ice sheets will respond to further warming, thus reducing confidence in 21st century sea level projections. In 2019, to address the uncertainty, the IPCC reported that sea level rise from the 1950 levels would likely to be within 0.61 to 1.1 metres if warming exceeds 4 degrees centigrade by 2100. The IPCC acknowledged greater sea level increases were possible through mechanisms not fully incorporated in models used in the assessment. From this perspective, we, that is the authors, the five eminent scientists, argue that outcomes, rising sea level outcomes, above this range are far more probable than below it and discuss how decision makers may benefit from reframing the IPCC's terminology to avoid unintentionally masking worst-case scenarios. In other words, a casual reading of the IPCC predictions, and frankly that's all most policymakers do, they just read the headlines of the reports, this misrepresents the actual dangers of the likelihood or even probability of much higher sea level rises. But with rising sea levels of just one metre, certain countries will disappear entirely. For example, some islands in the Pacific will be the first to go. 240 million people globally live within one metre of sea level. And almost a billion live within 10 metres. Note, we are only looking at human population here and not the amount of life in general that will be compromised or destroyed. So, what kind of practical challenges are we facing? It will be necessary, in the light of these rising sea levels, to discourage new buildings and habitation in low-lying and flood-prone areas, adapt buildings and infrastructure in high-risk areas, relocate populations, defend cities from rising waters, build coastal defences for more densely populated areas, relocate vital infrastructure such as ports, manufacturing plants and transport links, build new housing, roads, hospitals, schools, government buildings in safer areas, feed one's population as a result of the reduced agriculture Perhaps new types of crops are needed, perhaps even hybrid that are more resilient to heat or drought. So we require detailed impact assessment by experts of all these scenarios, with policy suggestions that need to be carried out now, while hopefully there are resources available. As always, action taken soon will be far cheaper than waiting for the events to materialise. There needs to be a specific government ministry in charge of this with priority funding and significant powers given to it as in a national emergency. A survival strategy would 
at least have the plans for such scenarios outlined above. More sensible is to complete preparations in response to the higher sea levels. However, I fear it is easier either to ignore the problem or hope that the reduction of emissions strategy will work with minimal damage to the economy. And this is very optimistic. Adaptation plans for a severely degraded climate need to be elevated to the level of national emergency. Survival in a degraded world climate has to be the priority. The most severe impacts are where sea levels rise but combine with sinking land. Such subsidence is sometimes a natural process but the weight of high-rise buildings and the emptying of underground water reservoirs to supply human populations tends to accelerate this subsidence. Jakarta in Indonesia, for example, is a coastal megacity built on sinking land. The city is already in danger. Even with just one metre of sea level rise, the impacts will be severe. Add to this increased tropical storms and hurricanes, then the risk levels are in the very severe range for numerous tropical and subtropical islands and cities. Of course, there have been ongoing practical efforts all over the world to address the problem of rising sea levels, storm surges, erosions of coastlines, flooding of major rivers and so on. The very origins of Chinese civilization thousands of years ago is bound up with the control of its huge rivers and their flood damage. A surprising number of cultures have myths of a great flood that destroyed early civilizations. The end of the Ice Age, 18,000 to 10,000 years ago, produced rising sea levels of over 120 metres. I think it is naive to think current rising sea levels will stop at one metre. Some recent examples of attempts to defend against rising sea levels, and from which much can be learnt, include experiences of water barriers and dikes in Holland, Denmark and Germany, along their coastlines. The Thames Barrier in London, UK, which is available to block the incoming tide of the major river, the Thames, running through the capital. Denmark, Germany and the Netherlands and the United Kingdom are among countries that have strengthened design standards for buildings and coastal infrastructure to tackle future sea level rises. Seawalls, surge barriers, water pumps and overflow chambers to keep water out are among the coastal defences being used. In the UK alone, it's been estimated around 200,000 properties could be at risk of evacuation. Tidal marshes, wetlands, are natural solutions to oncoming seas. These include restoration of mangroves and wetlands, which are increasingly part of the mix of attempts to mitigate the impact of sea level rise and protect cities from being inundated with flood water. Unfortunately, most of the world's mangroves and wetlands are or have been destroyed by economic development and tourism. In the United States, tidal marshes are being restored around San Francisco Bay to reduce the impact of storm surges and erosion. 
new housing construction on stilts and with services coming in overground and not underground could be used in some areas. Relocating of villages, for example in Fiji, due to threat of rising sea levels. Schools, hospitals, roads and basic infrastructure all need to be moved, as well as ancestral burial grounds. However, the prospect of relocating large cities is almost beyond the imagination. The reconstruction of sea and flood defences for New Orleans holds many lessons for low-lying coastal cities. Groundwater pumping in Tokyo caused the land to sink around 4 metres over the course of the 20th century. The city now relies on vast coastline flood defences. This is made possible by the financial resources that are available in Japan to armour the coastline. But this is not the case in many other locations. For many of the world's low-lying regions, a few metres of sea level rise would be unmanageable. Other projects have included floating houses, floating communities and even floating cities. However, I do not see how they can survive extreme weather conditions, such as storms and hurricanes and typhoons coming from the sea. Finally, armoured coastlines, once again, with lateral defences running along the coast, are increasingly used in various parts of the world. These can be walled or sloping terrains that are reinforced. When one thinks about the vast amount of motorway and road construction within many countries, then this could be significantly reduced, especially all those motorways going to airports, and diverted materials, budget, labour, to the exposed coastlines, which could be armoured and even have raised reinforced roads along the coast. The budget that would have been used for the motorways could be diverted to the defence of the coast. Also, the raised roads could be tourist attractions and bring in some income. Perhaps I'm getting carried away here, but surely some creative solutions are possible. Next month will hopefully be our final episode in this mini-series, where I will at last consider the mythical and spiritual dimensions of the climate crisis. I hope you can join me.